Um, I kind of guess that there probably here this morning aren't too many avid fans of The Simpsons. Um, but if you, I, I guess probably most of us are aware of what it is, the kind of uh, the, the animated American comedy program about the stereotypical, apparently yellow, um, American family. Um, but if you're roughly the same age as me, then you're part of the generation who, when you got home from school every single day, in the days before um, you, know, you could stream whatever you wanted, The Simpsons, cat is nodding, uh, The Simpsons were on every single day. And um, Homer Simpson is the dad. And he's the typical American dad, but he's got something of an anger management problem. And there's a memorable episode in which he acknowledges that he's got an issue with his temper. And so he resolves to get it under control. But of course, predictably and hilariously, throughout the course of the episode, uh, a series of progressively more infuriating and frustrating and an annoying set of circumstances come Homer's way. And each time he's trying to sort of bottle it up and keep a lid on his rage, which you can see he's trying to keep down. And then when he does, it kind of pops out the side of his neck in a sort of boil. Uh, and, then, and then he has to shove it back in. And then he sort of carries on and then he goes like that and he keeps the lid on it and goes like that and he has to poke it back in until eventually it's all too much and it kind of just explodes. The lid just pops off the top and Homer's kind of uncontrollable fury just unleashes in the most glorious fashion as he's unable to keep control. Well, I don't know if you identify with that. Um, I think uh, as much as I love Fred and Max, there is something about parenting toddlers, which means I increasingly, I think, identify with how Homer feels. Um, but we're thinking about this subject of self-control this morning. And it's the last of these fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit of self-control, that we've been looking at over the course of uh, these last several weeks. And the word self-control, really it means a kind of self-mastery, a self-restraint, the ability to experience some infuriating circumstances, but nevertheless not to fly into a fit of rage. Uh, the ability to, to see the chocolate cake and to leave it there. The ability to hear the salacious, juicy piece of gossip, but just to close down the conversation, not helpful to talk about. Uh, the ability to avoid and to say no to sexual temptation, like Joseph did, to just, just sort of get up, get out of the situation, to escape, or perhaps more likely the scene of uh, a lot of sexual temptation, to just shut the laptop, to turn the TV off, to say no, not helpful, and go outside and get some fresh air. Well, I wonder what comes to mind for you when you think about self-control. Most of us probably immediately know exactly where our Achilles heel is, and perhaps, possibly, probably, we've got more than one. So I suppose we're probably wondering, well, is it even possible? Is it realistic? Is it healthy to try to attempt to control our passions and our emotions and desires? Uh, maybe in the end, we'll all just erupt like Homer's rage. Isn't that what always happens when we try to get a handle on ourselves? Well, not according to Galatians chapter 5. Paul says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is self-controlled. It is just as inevitably as the trees in our garden, will produce apples. So when the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of the Christian believer, these fruit will grow. 
but how? Well, uh, just like physical fruit needs three things, sunlight, water, and nutrients, so uh, we've got three things to think about this morning. The fruit of the spirit of self-control, in order for it to grow, I think Galatians 5 is teaching us we need three things. We need an x-ray, we need some nails, and we need some company. Let's look at those in turn. First, we need an x-ray. Um, you probably, I'm sure probably all of us have had an x-ray, possibly, from time to time. I've uh, sprained my ankle several months ago now, I think I mentioned before. It's still not right. I was in the physio this week, and she said, it's not right after five months, I'm sending you for an x-ray. In order to get a proper diagnosis so that we can remedy the situation, we've got to get a clear picture of what is happening inside. And that's exactly what verse 16 and 17 give us. Have a look down at verse 16, where Paul diagnoses the situation. He said, so I say, live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What's the flesh? The footnote tells us at the bottom of the page, look down to the small print where it says, in context like this, the Greek word for flesh, socks, refers to the sinful state of human beings. Our sinful nature, the flesh is the sinful nature. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. The spirit desires one thing, the flesh desires something else. They are in conflict with each other so that you don't do what you want. So the biblical diagnosis is that there's a war going on inside of us, a conflict, which is a journalistic euphemism, isn't it, for a war, a conflict. It's a war of desires. It's a war of desires between what the the flesh wants and what the spirit wants. And St. Augustine famously said, the essence of sin is disordered desires. The fact is, our hearts love (laughs) the wrong things. And even when we love the right things, we love them in the wrong order. And I guess, probably, if we've been trying to follow Jesus for any length of time, we must know what that conflict is like. We've got competing, conflicting desires. They're completely in contradiction to each other. I want to get in shape. But I also want thirds, not just seconds. I want to get help. I want to offer help. But I also want to be comfortable. I don't want to sacrifice that. I want to be generous financially to others. But I also want to buy this nice, shiny new thing. I love my spouse. But I also love the way this person really understands how I feel. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Just like St. Augustine prayed, God, make me chaste. Just not yet. I think our culture, it gives us a misdiagnosis. It doesn't diagnose it quite like that. It says, actually, we've got to look deep inside within ourselves and find out what's our heart truly saying. We've got to listen to our heart and listen to the deepest desires of our heart, and that's how to be truly authentic to ourselves, is to go with what our hearts desire. We've got to be like Elsa. Just let it go. Don't try and, you know, bottle up what's inside. Just go for it. But the truth, truth is, when we get the x-ray out and we look inside, we find there's all sorts of desires in there which aren't good. They're not healthy and they conflict with each other. Jesus famously was not at all positive in his diagnosis about what was going on in our hearts. From within, he said, from out of our hearts come all sorts of evil thoughts. Yeah, we... 
We haven't very much over the last few weeks spent very much time looking at this third paragraph. There are four paragraphs here in this section, aren't there? We kind of glossed over that third paragraph, verse 19 and onwards, the acts of the flesh. It's not a particularly pleasant paragraph to look at. The acts of the flesh are obvious, and it tells us there's 15 words here which divide up into, if you can see the semicolons, which I think I need glasses, there's commas and there's semicolons. I think they've grouped them together into four different categories of desire, sexual, spiritual, societal, and substance abuse, sexual immorality, verse 19, impurity and debauchery. Now that's a pretty uh, comprehensive list of, of things which the heart wants to go after. I mean, we may know that there's all sorts of attempts at the moment. Our bishops are caught in all kinds of muddle. Uh, in fact, they've got three days away, again, next week, ahead of General Synod coming up, in which part of what they're discussing is, is it realistic? Is it possible, actually, to resist the urges, the sexual desires of our hearts? Maybe it's not possible. Maybe we should rearrange the goalposts. And uh, maybe we've misunderstood what the Bible is saying in this area. But actually, all the biblical commentators are crystal clear that those three words at the start of verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, comprehensively include the desire for any kind of sexual intimacy outside of the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. Any other kind of... We desire sexual intimacy all over the place. That's the proper place for it according to the scriptures. But there's not just that kind of temptation, verse 20, spiritual temptation to idolatry and witchcraft, to worship other things, to tamper with the dark forces of evil. Hatred, discord, jealousy, all of these things which get in the way of society, of relationships one to another. Jealousy, not overt as, as sexual temptation, is it? It might just be within. We just feel jealous feelings all the time and they're threatening to burst open. Fits of rage, verse 20, just like Homer. Selfish ambition. And then lastly, verse 21, drunkenness. And orgies. It doesn't mean sexual orgies. It's really talking about binges, apparently. The desire to binge on all sorts of things. Some legal, some illegal. Interestingly, that whoever come, came up with the original, the list of the seven deadly sins, they're not in the Bible, the seven deadly sins, but... They felt the need to distinguish between different kinds of greed. I mean, there's the desire for avarice, which is the desire for stuff. Then they distinguish between that and gluttony. We had a series once on the seven deadly sins, and my vicar, my previous church, admitted to me he'd scarcely ever been as nervous preparing to preach as the week which he was tasked to tackle the subject of gluttony because he knew how acceptable that particular temptation was in our society. It's a pretty uncomfortable diagnosis, isn't it? That all these desires are in our hearts. Is it such a big deal? I mean, we live in such a permissive and a progressive society. Does it really matter you know, who we sleep with or whether we indulge a little bit too much about what we eat or drink or a little bit of selfish ambition here and there? I mean, can't we just say to the doctor, I don't, take the x-ray away, you know, let's ignore it? Well, I think deep down, but ultimately, we know that these things aren't, they're not good for us. They're not good for other people. I had a conversation with somebody this week who admitted that before they returned to Christ, that the whole of the first part of their life had been all about selfish ambition and career and money, money, money. And he said it just cost them his marriage and it hadn't made him happy. And this selfish ambition allowed to go unchecked was costly to him and to others. And all the major thinkers and religious leaders down the centuries actually have agreed We've got to keep a lid on our desires. At Plato and Aristotle, they said temperance was one of the four 
cardinal virtues. And Buddhist teaching, as far as I can understand, is really largely to do with self-control. It's about self-knowledge and self-restraint in order to attain the path to enlightenment. But Paul lovingly warns us here that the ultimate reason not to pass the x-ray back to the doctor is in verse 21. I warn you, says Paul, lovingly, as I did before, that those who live like this, not those who occasionally slip up, but those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Evidence that we don't yet belong to Christ, that we haven't yet been filled with his spirit. So there's a war going on, says Paul, a war between the flesh and the spirit, a conflict in which a two-state solution is not a desirable outcome. We cannot negotiate for terms of peace with our sin. This is an enemy that needs to be defeated, which is why we need, secondly, nails. Nails. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. It's interesting, it isn't telling everybody how to live. The Bible doesn't tell everybody how to live. The Bible tells Christians how to live. We want to follow Jesus. We want to belong to Christ. It says, verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus says, anyone wants to follow me? Got to deny themselves and take up their cross. It's the most vivid and dramatic picture, isn't it, of repentance and self-denial, the idea of taking up the cross while Paul develops Jesus' kind of visual metaphor for what Christian discipleship looks like. He takes it another step further. Following Jesus isn't just taking up the cross. It's not just walking with the cross. It's actually taking it to the place of execution and seeing that the nails get driven in to the old nature. Crucified the flesh. It's painful, isn't it? And I guess that the growth of the fruit of the spirit of self-control is unlikely to be easy. In the words of that great philosopher, Sylvester Stallone, there's no pain, no gain. I mean, if your eye, Jesus says, causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, if cake causes you to sin, or bookmakers cause you to sin, or old photographs or old books cause you to sin, or certain unhelpful friendships cause you to sin, The scripture is unrelenting and encouraging us to identify these desires of our flesh, not to explain them away, not to rationalise them, not to make peace with them, but to put them to death. What the old writers called the mortification of sin. John Stott, the great Christian leader of the last century, put it like this. So widely is this biblical teaching neglected that it needs to be further enforced. The first great secret of holiness lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. If besetting sins persistently plague us, we all know what that's like, don't we? Those besetting sins, they persistently plague us. It's either because we've never truly repented, ouch, maybe we've never truly repented, or because having repented, we've not maintained our repentance. It's as if having nailed our old nature to the cross... We keep 
wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to fondle it, to caress it, to long for its relief, even to try to take it down from the cross. But we need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades our mind, we must kick it out at once. We've declared war on it. We're not going to resume negotiations. We've settled the issue once and for all. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to draw the nails. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. However, having identified the problem with the x-ray and resolved to put it to death with nails, there is a third thing that we need, and that is company. Because without someone's help, we'll just be like Homer Simpson. He knew he had a problem, but he could only suppress it temporarily. He couldn't crucify it because he was trying to do it on his own. As those who've been through the 12 steps know, yes, of course the first thing is to admit that we've got a problem, but you can't get anywhere by yourself. You need the higher power. And the higher power, the highest power of all, is invoked in this passage. In verse 16, so I say, says Paul, live by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I mean, the, the fruit of the Spirit of self-control, the fruit, the fruit of self-control is not the fruit of self-determination and grit and willpower. It's the fruit of the Spirit. We need the Spirit. What, as we close, does that mean in practical terms? What does it mean to have the Spirit help us with self-control? Verse 18 says to be led by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, being led, I mean, the picture is a familiar one, isn't it, of sheep and shepherds. The sheep need to hear and listen to the shepherd's voice if we're going to be led by him. The Spirit's voice is the one who reminds us of the gospel. You know, why should we be self-controlled? Why should we? You know, Plato says you've got to be self-controlled if you want to have a happy life. You have to be. The Buddha says you've got to be self-controlled if you're going to attain the path to enlightenment. You have to be. But the gospel says you don't have to. You don't have to, verse 18. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the law, there's no law that says you must be self-controlled. Because the reality is, we all know, if there was, we wouldn't be able to keep it. Because there's only one who has been perfectly self-controlled. There's only one who said, your spirit is willing and your flesh is weak. He said it to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane when they could not control themselves. And Jesus knew how they felt. He knew that conflict because he was fully human, remember. He knew the inner conflict between the flesh and the spirit because he was spirit made flesh. We don't follow a distant God. A distant saviour, says the book of Hebrews, who is unable to sympathise with us in our weaknesses because he was made flesh and he was like us in every way and he was tempted just as we are. And yet, in the garden, when the disciples' spirits were willing but their flesh was weak, and indeed Jesus' own flesh desired for the cup to pass, nevertheless he prayed to the Father, not my will, 
but yours be done. He was perfectly self-controlled. He was nailed to the cross so that we can be free to be self-controlled. See, the gospel sets us free. The whole of chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1, starts off this chapter. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Verse 13, start of this section. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. The reality is the gospel says we're free to be... Not that we have to be self-controlled. We're free to be self-controlled. And that's all the difference in the world. As somebody recently said who came to Christ after having been following another religion, a lot of it's the same discipline... But the motivation is completely different. It's, it's coming at it from a place of love and grace rather than from necessity and from fear. We're free to be self-controlled. I'm sure that's the reason why the discipline of self-control is a pretty minor theme in the New Testament. It's not really in the Bible very much. All the old writers, you know, all, all the other religions are full of self-control. You must be self-controlled if you want to be a religious person. Self-control isn't actually that much in the Bible because actually the gospel isn't about what we do but what Christ has done. It's about grace, not discipline. But the Spirit doesn't just help us by reminding us of that, which is what we need in order to be self-controlled. He actually steps in, and he supernaturally helps us out in our hour of need. What are we going to do when we're in that enticing situation, when we're faced with that tempting proposition in the pub, in the fridge, online, wherever it is? What are we going to do in that moment? Don't look within. That's the worst place to look. Look up and pray one of the greatest and oldest prayers. Help. He will. He will. He'll step in and he'll help us. So shall we pray that now as we close?